Well, let's open a word of prayer and we'll look at First um, Samuel chapter 10. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can gather here tonight and, and just um, worship you and, and open your word and apply it to our lives. And Lord, we ask that you would just uh, minister to our hearts as only you can. And, and Lord, as we look at the, anult- the anointing of uh, Saul as king, Israel's first king, and, and Lord, we ask that you would just uh, uh, make this text practical to us and it's neat to see how your hand of providence is woven throughout these scriptures. And so we just uh, know the same is true for us, that you're in constant care of us each day. And we just thank you for that, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, last week we were looking for donkeys in chapter 9. <laughs> and uh, this week we're, we're looking for a king, yes. The one, uh, one thing you see here as we uh, go through this text. We're going to kind of read through it as we, as we teach through it. So. But we left off in, in verse uh, uh, chapter 9. And I, I want to jump back a little bit just to show us the, the, the providence of, of God and all this. I mean, just as you re- remember, Samuel told Saul, basically, this is what's going to happen. This is, is, is how it's going to work. Saul arrives there in the, the city and... Uh, the ladies point out Samuel, and at the, at the very end there, verse 22, it says, Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought him into the hall and gave them a place at the head of the table, basically. Remember, they were hungry, they were looking for, they didn't have anything to give uh, the prophet when they, when they met with him, and uh, they provided a feast for them, and that was all part of God's, God's providential care for them. Down in verse 27, it says, As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here for yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. All right. And so here we have Samuel, who is the uh, prophet. You have Saul, who is about to be anointed king. And you have to understand, in their structure in Israel, basically the prophet pulled rank <laughs> on the king. I mean, the king was kind of a militaristic ruler and protected the people, that kind of a thing. But the prophet was, was pretty much over him in, in a lot of different ways, especially spiritually, but even more so as far as just prominence and things like that. They looked up to the, the prophets back in, in those days. And so here, you know, when... when Samuel says to Saul, I'm going to make known to you the word of God. This is a, a special revelation from God himself through God's prophet. And that's what prophets did in the Old Testament. They would relate to the people of God, the word of God. And that happened through supernatural revelation. Okay, It wasn't like he was pointing to a book saying, oh, here, go read the Bible. It, it, it was literally speaking out the word of God through Samuel. And so in verse 10, we see this anointing beginning, and the first nine verses kind of shows us the, the proof of what was told was going to happen. It says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, meaning obviously Saul's head, not his own head, <laughs> and, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over the people of Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, 
and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And then he begins to tell them this, this, uh, this sign that was going to take place. But, you know, anointing was, was something that they did, and usually they would, like, you use olive oil or something. And so here you have, you have Saul, who doesn't feel worthy of this. Remember, he's already kind of argued about the whole thing and said, well, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, and, and they were the, the least of all tribes. And uh, one reason they were the least of all tribes is because they were caught up in, in some sexual sin, and they were judged as a result of that. And so uh, they weren't like a humble tribe. It wasn't like, oh, we're just the humble little meek tribe of Benjamin. No, they were, they were small because they were the worst tribe. <laughs> Uh, morally, all right, and um, and so Saul is kind of having a hard time with all this, but Samuel provides some proof that this is how this is going to going to go down. And so in verse two, he says, "When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found.'" And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Now remember, back in, in the previous chapter, Samuel had already told Saul, hey, don't, don't worry about the donkeys, right? They're, they're already taken care of. God providentially cared for this. And so one thing you see in these, in these chapters, 8, 9, 10, is this providential hand of God caring for everything. I mean, even the donkeys, you know the the you know here are these donkeys they're they're just lost okay they just took off they whatever um, the donkeys went left and and uh, Saul went right and they they misplaced each other somewhere along the line but all that is within the providence of God and, and there's a difference between what we would say a a miracle and the providence of God. Uh, the providence of God is, is God working kind of to carry out his purpose with everyday things, okay? Uh, if this was going to be a miracle, the miracle would be, wow, you know, the, the donkeys would just disappear before their eyes and they'd be put somewhere else. Well, that's not what happened. They just wandered off. But God wove that into his whole, his whole plan here, his whole purpose. And so you have... Saul dealing with all this, and he's not feeling worthy of this. He's not, he's not understanding this. This is all kind of new to him. He's just out looking for some donkeys. And he was unsuccessful at that. And so Samuel provides some reassurance. And so the first thing he does here is he, he, God provides reassurance to, to Saul through the message of these two men. The, these two men will basically tell you what I told you yesterday. All right, that... The donkeys are going to be found. They're already found. They're not worried about, but your, your dad's a little anxious about you, but it's all going to work out. And so th- that was the first providential thing that, that God allowed Saul to experience, to kind of say, oh, okay, I, I remember Samuel yesterday telling me about this. And, and God does that sometimes in our lives. You know, he works in ways, and then you know, we may be anxious one day, and the next day we, we think back and go, ah, that's why 
Yeah, that's why that happened, or that's why this happened, or whatever. And it kind of all begins to fit together. And so Saul is kind of initially thinking, okay, well, all right, these two guys showed up. They, 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 did, they shared this message with me, which is probably good. I mean, what shall I do about my son? So the father's still concerned. But then in verse 3 it says, Then you shall go from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. It's kind of, a, you know, back then they didn't have freeways and streets and all that stuff. So it was kind of like you had landmarks. So this was an oak. It was probably something that was very prominent. And it says, When you arrive at the oak of Tabor, three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. So you're first going to run into two men who have a message for you. Then you're going to have a meal. Guys are going to provide some sustenance for you through these three men. And it says, uh, one is carrying three young goats, another carrying uh, three loaves of bread, uh, another carrying a skin of wine. Verse 4 says, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of their bread, which you shall accept from their hand. Uh, after you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, which is, is a prominent place there, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and will be turned into another man. Now, when you first read this, this is kind of weird, right? You're going, what is this, what is this happening here? Now, remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would what? He would anoint people he would come upon people he would indwell us in the new testament uh in the in the time of christ but but here it was uh that the holy spirit would come upon people for certain tasks or uh, certain ministries they had to do and this is basically what happened here it says these these group of prophets uh they were kind of i don't, I don't know how else to explain it other than It'd be kind of like a charismatic <laughs> church service going on here. These were people who were not necessarily looked up to by the community, kind of like religious nuts. And they'd go around and statically talk about different things and just it, some of the stuff they didn't even make any sense. Um, and they, they would prophesy. As a matter of fact, even the prophets of Baal said that they prophesied. So don't think of prophecy as in some positive thing. It may, it may not be. But here it was, it was kind of a, a frenzied, in another place in the Bible, the, the word uh, rave, I think, is used to describe what's going on. I think it's in 1 Kings 18, where they're, where they're kind of into this frenzy. They're worked up in this religious frenzy. Well, that's what these three guys, uh, the, or these prophets, are doing. And so you have some music playing, you have all this stuff, and a lot of times in the culture they would use the music to get the people kind of psyched up and you know, into a certain mood, just like they do today. It's really no different. And so it says here, then the Spirit will rush upon you, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and others, you'll be caught up in all this. And it says you'll be turned into another man. Now, this doesn't mean literally, right, another man, like, you know, he went in there, Saul, and he came out somebody else. He's not saying that. It's just that, his, his whole being will be changed. His whole attitude uh, will be changed. And it's kind of confirmed when it, it, we go down there a little further. And uh, 
it, it, it talks about him having a new heart. That's not talking about salvation. Okay, that's just talking about a change of heart, a new perspective, you might say. And so it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and will prophesy, you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Verse 7, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. In other words, that's confirmation that, you know what, everything I'm saying is true. When all this stuff happens, these three things, when you encounter these three things, just think back and remember, hey, this is what, this is what the prophet of God told me was going to happen. And so this isn't a whim I'm going on here, Saul. Samuel wanted Saul to understand that this is from God. And God uses certain things to confirm uh, his prophecy and his truth at certain points. And so this was, this was one of these. These were, were signs. And so the donkeys are going to be found. You'll get that report. These three men are going to go up and they're going to give you two loaves of bread and you're going to encounter, have an encounter with these, these prophets. And, and that's the, 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 uh, in the ministry of the Spirit there. All these things are going to happen to you. Saul's probably thinking, what are you talking about? You know, he's not, he's not a real spiritually enlightened guy, <laughs> okay? I mean, at this point. And so he's, he's thinking, all right, whatever. Um, and then it says there in verse uh, 8, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. In other words, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there in a little bit. Go there. And he says, Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And it's interesting to know that God kind of will provide for the ministry that we're called to do. Here, Saul was being anointed as Israel's king. He didn't feel worthy of it. Wasn't worthy of it, really, other than he was God's choice. But remember, this isn't a, a, a positive thing for Israel, is it? This is really a way of God, what? Judging them. Okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. <laughs> Wait till you see this guy. All right. And we're going to get to the point where, you know, at first he's all humble, humble. But then all of a sudden, man, something clicks and this guy changes, uh, which is not good. And so uh, you, you see this here. And then in verse 7, it says, And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And this is where I'm, I'm saying that in all these things came to pass that day. In other words, it's not saying he got born again. It's not saying, don't think New Testament new heart. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a new perspective, you could say. Uh, that, wow, okay. If, if this really happens, let's, let's give it a try. Why not? They did feed us, after all. They didn't hurt us, so we're, we're here, and let's, let's see what this, this, if this prophet is, is right. And so then, you know, when you move on here, it, it says in verse 10, when they, came, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. So all of a sudden, all this begins to happen. And it all happens that day. The Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he, proclaimed, how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? In other words, they knew who he was. They knew who his dad was. And they're thinking, Why is he out there with these religious fanatics prophesying and dancing in the street? I mean, this is kind of bizarre. He's got oil on his head. You know, he's got 
two loaves of bread and a goat. I mean, what's going on here? Is Saul now among the prophets? Verse 12, And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? So this kind of says, well, wait, who are these people anyway? So they weren't real, that's why I said they weren't real well known as far as the identity of this identity of these these band of prophets that roamed the countryside singing and dancing and speaking in a static speech. It was kind of a crazy group of people. And so they're kind of calling into question their credibility. So therefore it says, and this is where the proverb comes in, it says, is Saul also among the prophets? In other words, they would say that when something weird would happen. <laughs> you know, it was just a saying. They would say, oh, is Saul also among the prophets? You know, that's weird. That, that happened. That's kind of odd. When they would come across a weird experience or a weird thing that would happen in their life, they would say, oh, is Saul also among the prophets? In other words, that's such a weird thing to understand. Why would that even be true? Because we know who this guy is. We know where he comes from. And these other people, we don't really know who they are anyway, but it was just kind of an odd, an odd occurrence. And so they, they had this, this, this proverb that came up. And then in verse 13, it says, When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Okay? And this is the, the, basically the, the, the place of, of worship. It says, He came to the high place, 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? <laughs> He's looking at him. He's probably sweaty, oily. He's got two loaves of bread. He's got a goat. And it's, it's just kind of weird, you know, like, what, what, is, what happened to you? And he said, well, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Verse 15, and Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. Now, it's interesting here what Saul's response is, because he doesn't really tell him the whole truth, does he? He kind of gives him, you know, he kind of placates him a little bit with an answer, but he doesn't really unfold the whole thing, because remember, he's not really in favor of this at this point. He's kind of going along thinking, okay, these things happened, and I guess I'll try this and have a new perspective here on this whole deal. But at this point, he's not totally embracing this, this this thrust being thrust into leadership as Israel's king. And so in verse 16, Saul said to his uncle, oh, Samuel told us plainly that the donkeys had been found and about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. So he held back some information. So at this point, who are the two people that know that Saul will be Israel's king? Samuel. And, and Saul, basically, and God, three, if you want to. Well, that's why it said he went ahead. <clears throat> Remember when we read that, it said, send your servant ahead. So he's not privy to this stuff. He just kind of gets reacquainted with Samuel. He's got some oil on his head, and he looks a wreck. And it's like, what's going on here? So nobody really knows what's going on at this point. And that's, that's an important thing to remember as we, we jump into this, this next section, because at mitzvah, basically, Samuel brings Israel together to present Saul as their king. He proclaims them to be king, or him to be king. In verse 17, so in verse, in verse 17 it says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, remember he's a spokesman for God, right? So Samuel speaking on behalf of God. The God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians 
and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. This is God basically recounting to them, all right, his goodness, his faithfulness, his graciousness, his patience. He's saying, okay, this is, you know, this is what you want. This is, remember, we, we talked a couple of weeks ago, be careful what you pray for, because this is what's going to happen. And so he's pointing out to them, you know, this isn't because of me. You know, I didn't fall asleep on the job here as your leader, as your king as your God. It's you who want this. As a matter of fact, I protected you from all these people who were oppressing you. But in verse 19 it says, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And that basically means, okay, you know what, for every thousand people they had a pretty much a leader so get all the leaders together it wasn't necessarily all the people in israel that came uh, but it was they, they had them broken down into rank and so they would have them come by their land area their clans and and their families he says present yourself before the lord but you notice in verse 15 or 19 there it says but today you have rejected your god who saves you and, and I, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, that's really what the world does today, right? I mean, they reject the God who desires to save them. God, you know, we sing that song, our God saves. <laughs> that's so true. And he's still in the business of saving. But you know what? Until God quickens men and women's hearts to understand that, they're bent on rejecting the God who created them. That's just their their natural sinful bent. And so until God opens their eyes, that's where they're going to go. And so he says here, today you have rejected your God. And that's the way it always is. You know, sometimes we get caught up in in our theology and we think, oh, God chose us before the foundation of the world. So therefore, if people end up in hell, they're there because they're not chosen by God. And so how could we blame them if God sent them to hell? Well, that's not what the scriptures teach. The scripture teaches that God, yes, before the foundation of the world, chose those whom would be saved. But it doesn't say that he didn't choose the other people. It just doesn't say that. I know logically that's where we want to go. But there's not going to be a person in hell because God didn't choose them. The reason they're going to be in hell is because they rejected God. So it's it's important to to understand that, that, that here even though God is giving them what they prayed for, what they want, he's saying, hey, you're the ones that rejected me. And this is really going to be a form of judgment upon your choice. So he says, today you, re- you, you reject your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. So present yourselves, and let's see where it goes. Well, verse 20, Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Why do you think they cast lots to pick their king here? What was the purpose of this? When you stop and think about it, who knew that Saul was going to be king at this point? Well, three people, right? God, Samuel, and Saul. That's it. And I guarantee you, if Samuel would have come out and said, hey, here's your new king, this is Saul, they all would have said, I don't think so. 
This guy with oil on his head, and yeah, okay, he's a big guy, but he looks, can't even find a bunch of donkeys he lost. I mean, this was not a, a, good, a good pick for a king. This is not somebody naturally that you would pick to be your king other than his stature. And that shows you the shallowness of their own hearts because that's all they saw in Saul, right, was his stature. And, and so the reason they did this drawing of these lots, casting of these lots, is not to pick Saul as their king, but to really confirm that he already was chosen by God to be their king. See, there's no way the people, if they go through this procedure of casting lots, there's no way then the people could say, oh, well, wait a minute, Samuel, he's your favorite. Why would you pick him, right? They couldn't do that. It was kind of in their minds, as, as Dave pointed out, kind of the providence of God led them down this road. And so they cast the lot and it fell on the tribe of Benjamin. Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not a favorite. It's, it's something that's done truly, they believe, by God. Okay, even though it's already done. In verse 21, it says, And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clan. So, okay, <clears throat> we know that it's going to be the tribe of Benjamin. That was probably the biggest hurdle. Because everybody probably thought, what? <laughs> that tribe? I mean, they're not, they're just a, a bunch of, <laughs> you know, immoral people. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And the clan of uh, Matrites was taken by Lot. And that's part of his clan. And then Saul the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. And so at this point, people are probably like, I can't believe it. But then it says in verse 21, but when they sought him, guess what? He was lost just like his donkeys were lost, right? He wasn't around. That's why I said he he wasn't really buying into this. He wasn't, you know, if you got chosen to be king, you think that you'd be like, whoa. This is pretty awesome. You know, yeah, bring it on. This would be great. But he wasn't that way at all. Uh, He was just the opposite at first. He couldn't be found. And then in verse um, 22, it says, So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? In other words, okay, did this thing work out the right way? Because he's not even here. I don't think God would pick a, a, a guy that didn't show up. And the Lord said, Behold... He has hidden himself among the baggage. So here's Saul, you know, probably not feeling totally up for this task. Basically, what they would do is when they would gather together as clans or as Israel would come together, they, you know, they would bring all their stuff and and they would have sections, kind of like in an airport. You know, if you've ever been to an airport, when your bag gets there ahead of you. And you got to go over to that section where they set out a bunch of suitcases, right? In a corner somewhere. It's just kind of crazy. Well, there's Saul hiding back there uh, amongst the baggage. And behold, it says they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, look, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And so he was obviously, as we spoke about last week, a, a man of great stature. And that was impressive to them. It wasn't impressive to God, but it was impressive to them. Because we're, as humans, we're impressed by stuff like that. You know, a king is mainly for military purposes, supposed to protect the people, all this stuff, lead them in battle. And so you want somebody, you know, you don't want some little wimp. But when you stop and you think about what God looks at, what does God look at? He looks at the heart. And if you just compare Samuel, or I mean Saul, And David, 
right? I mean, two different perspectives. See, and that's where you can even relate it to Christ. When Christ came, we just talked about this, going, coming as the Messiah and coming in, in on, on uh, Palm Monday, riding into Jerusalem, and just how it was done. It just wasn't done in a very royal way. I mean, this is the Messiah, really? How is he going to do this? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense to the disciples. It didn't make any sense to the people. And yet, they kind of went along with it for a while. But here, you know, it wasn't the outward appearance of Saul that should have been important. But that's all they were impressed with. And that's what shows, it kind of shows their, their shallowness, right? It shows the shallowness of their own perspective as far as, as, as life goes. And it says, um, verse 24, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? Because of the lots, but he was already chosen before that, so it was kind of a shell game. There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, What? Long live the king. And so they finally got what they wanted. They got their king. There's Saul. It says in verse 25 that they wrote up a book, a parchment. Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. In other words, he went through basically everything that he went through before. When he talked about uh, over in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people that were asking for a king. He said there will be the ways of the king who reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and so forth and be his horsemen and take this from you and take that from you. It's not going to be a pretty picture. You should want this thing. Yeah, we want a king. All the other nations have a king. We want a king. And it was just God's way of really judging his own people. And sometimes, you know, we have to be careful because sometimes we're pretty insistent on we think we know what we want. And I've dealt with people over the years who just, you know, whether it's this or that or whatever, and, and uh, you know, you might want to wait on the Nope, nope. And they go through with it. And boy, you, you see the consequences. And it's unfortunate because, you know, sometimes God gives us the desires of, his heart, of our heart, right? And sometimes our, our desires are not right. And so that's why we always have to be patient. We have to be willing to filter all this through uh, the Lord, through his word, through counsel. You know, when you're making a decision, when you're, when you're doing something like this, it's, it's very important to understand that, you know what, it, it's time to make sure that, that this is lining up with God's word, with his plan, with his purpose for my life, all these things. Well, they were just impressed with, with Saul's stature. They said, hey, long live the king. He wrote this book out, kind of laid it out for them up before the Lord. And then it kind of ends on a sad note. This chapter, it says, Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. And I was okay, get out of here, go home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him, this is interesting, went men of valor. All right? If you're a king, you have to have some, some people with you, right? I mean, to protect you, whatever. So there was men of valor. But look at how these men became men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. I think the vast majority of the people, even though they were impressed with Samuel, were kind of in the, the characterization of, of uh, verse 
27. It says, but some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? I mean, even though he was great in stature, he, he didn't look that impressive. And they knew him and he wasn't that impressive. Uh, and it says they despised him and brought him no present at all. Now, back in that time, what would a king do if you did that? What would be the natural recourse? Yeah, okay, you're dead. You're gone. Because you want 100% compliance. You don't want a, a chance of a rebellion or anything like that. And the king would just, you know, get rid of those people. You'd never see them again. You have countries today that that's the way they operate. You go against the dictator, well, then you, you just go missing. And it says they despised him and brought him no present. But look at the end. It says, but he held what? His peace. He held his peace. In other words, even though he had the right to kill these individuals, he didn't do it. And we're going to see in the, in the coming weeks how Saul, in an unfortunate way, grows into his role as king. And we're going to see a lot of what Samuel prophesied back in chapter 8, okay, actually will come true. But, so you take all that information and you say, okay, that's an interesting story, but how does it kind of, how do we take this home? What do, we, what do we take from these couple chapters dealing with this? Well, I think, first of all, when you, when you think of, of us and how we're to discern what God desires us to do, in our daily lives, okay. How do we how do we go through life knowing okay we're doing the right thing? This is what God wants us to do. Well, it, start, it starts all the way back in chapter nine, really, when you when Saul first got uh, chosen to be king. We we have to first I think realize how God uses our own circumstances in our lives, because nothing happens by chance. Everything that happened to you today happened under the purview of God. Doesn't matter what it is. Could be something good. It could be something bad. Uh, Ephesians one eleven says that God works all things after what the counsel of His will. All things, good, bad, ugly. Romans eleven thirty six says, "For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever." Daniel chapter four verse thirty five says, "He who does according to His will in the host of heaven." and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? In other words, we don't have the right to go to God and say, well, wait a minute, I don't, I don't like this plan that you have for me. This is not, not an option. Um, Psalm 135, and I think we were over this a couple of weeks ago on Sundays, but 135 verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. See, this is not about us, it's about God. So when we, we want to discern what God's will for us is, we have to realize that, you know what? God uses our own circumstances. You know, God used, in this story, those lost donkeys. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but that's what he did. The donkeys didn't know they were being used. And see, sometimes God uses people in our lives that we don't even know God's using them until maybe later. And that's, once again, it comes back to that, that providence of God uh, working in, in a way. We see his perfect timing in verse, verses 11 through 14. We looked at this last week of chapter 9. Everything just lined up exactly how he said it would. There's a pointed time for everything. So 
we have to realize that God uses our own circumstances. We also have to respond to what he reveals to us. Sometimes God gives us a message, and maybe we don't like the message, so we don't want to respond to it. That's not an option. In verses basically 9.15 all the way through 10.8, that's what's happening. All right? Samuel's responding to what God is revealing to him. God is actively responding, giving him truth and Samuel's being obedient. He's going to Saul. He's telling him these things. It says in verse 15 of chapter 9, the Lord has, had revealed this to Samuel. Uh, and when something is truly God's will, he will confirm it. He will. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to worry about it. And you see all these happenstances that happen here in this chapter, but they're really not whether it's finding the donkeys, meeting these three men, meeting the group of prophets, all this stuff was prophesied. All this stuff was taken into consideration by God. And then also, I think we can know the Lord's will by recognizing that he can change things as he wishes. And we see that basically in verses 9 through 13 of chapter 10 where God actually changes Saul's perspective on some of these things. I mean, he probably would have ran for the hills if God hadn't done this. That assures us that when God calls us to do something, we may not feel uh, adequate within ourselves to do it. And God knows that. And he's okay with that. You know, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't expect us to have all the answers. He doesn't expect us to have everything, you know, perfectly arranged before us in ministry that, it, boy, we can do this in our sleep. No. Ministry is a challenge. I mean, constantly the tables are turning. The, everything's shifting. You know, I mean, even within a local church, I mean, you have people coming, you have people going, you have people moving, you have people dying, you have people giving birth, you have all these things constantly changing. And I think ministry is one of the things that you can never, ever, ever perfect you know there's never a day i think for any of us involved in ministry where we go to bed at night and say oh i'm so glad everything's done it's all done it's never done there's always something else that god lays out before you and that's why you have to monitor yourself you have to monitor because you're never going to complete the task this side of heaven it's just never going to happen you're never going to you know we're never going to get to a point where we meet on a Sunday and say, you know what, today is the day. We're finally the perfect church. This is perfect. Don't anybody move. Don't anybody do anything. You know, this is, we've arrived. You know, it's never going to happen because we're not perfect. And so it's a constant battle that goes on. But God can change things from what they have been, from what they seem to be, and that's what happens there in verses 9 to 13. God changed his heart. He changed his perspective on things. God can change even our ability to do things. I've seen several people in our church who, at one point, they were kind of right, right with me. You know, yeah, I totally understand. You know, I could never, you know, I don't like to get in front of people and talk or do anything like that. And now they're embracing it. They're doing it. They don't maybe feel comfortable doing it, but they're actually doing it. Why? Because they're being obedient to what God is calling them to do. See, just because God calls you to do something, it doesn't mean you're going to feel comfortable doing it. As a matter of fact, it's probably good you don't feel comfortable doing it. 
that you feel the weight of that task constantly. And so God can change those things. Uh, and then also, we rely upon his direction, his control, verses 17 to 22. That's what you see where, where all this happens, uh, all these, these, these circumstances just kind of unfold before them. Uh, God is directing them. He's controlling all these things. Uh, even through the casting of lots, that was more for the people than it was for Samuel and Saul. Both of them already knew that Saul was the king, period. Uh, and so it was more, more or less to convince the people that this is what God wants. Uh, sometimes, you know, in a church it works that way, right? I mean, as elders, we may get together and pray about something or someone or something like that. And, and um, we may come before the congregation one day and say, you know, we really feel that this person has a desire to, to become an elder. And, and he's mentioned that and we prayed about it and we think he'd make a great elder. We want to... Uh, encourage you to go along with this <laughs> you know uh, we don't need to vote on that kind of thing it's it's more of a you know seeing god at work and carrying that out so you're relying upon his direction upon his control and then in verses 23 to 27 it's it's basically you react to what god has clearly shown you to be his will um, you know at one point here samuel tells saul Look, when all this stuff has happened, then just go do whatever your hands find to do. He says that in verse 7. He says, now when these signs meet you, do whatever your hands find to do, for God is with you. You know, sometimes we struggle with God's will. We're thinking, what does God want us to do? Well, there's some basic things that we know is God's will. We know without a shadow of a doubt. And when we cover those basic things, we know that God desires us to pray. Do we not? We know that God desires us to read his word. We know that God desires us to fellowship with the saints. We know that God desires us to serve him in some capacity. He desires us to live moral lives, lives above reproach. As as we do all those things, if you're doing those things in honor of God and the way he says, then go do whatever you want. Because if it falls under those categories, you're okay. You're not going to go out and do something bad because, you know, that wouldn't bring honor to God. That wouldn't help you serve him or that wouldn't, you know, uh, encourage you in your relationship with him. And so that's what, what Samuel basically told Saul. After this point, you know, when you reach this point, when all this stuff happens, just go do whatever your hands find to do. But do something. Do something. You know, sometimes, even in a small church like ours, where we have a lot of people serving, you know, some people will say, well, I, you know, I really want to serve. And they'll say something like this, you know, tell me what you want me to do. It's like, it doesn't work that way. Who am I to tell you what to do? I, I don't want to tell you what to do. I mean, God's perfectly capable of telling you what he wants you to do. You know, and, and so why don't you pray about that and come back and, and then we can talk about that after God has given you a couple things that maybe he wants you to, to, to go through. You see the hand of God's providence here, but you also see kind of the practical outworkings of God leading us and showing us his will each and every day.